0: For your feature presentation,
1: one or two or three or four, but five Force Five. Hello and welcome to the Force Five podcast. I'm your host, Jason Kleberg, and I hope you had an awesome and safe Halloween. Filmmaker Jim Hemphill joined me this week to talk Top 5 Underrated Sequels, and we did not agree on my number one being underrated, and after a little research, Mr. Hemphill might just be right. Anyway, listen and tell me if I'm wrong or right on social media. So far, all signs point to me really remembering the reception on that film being way different than it actually is. Before we get to our lists, I've got reviews for a couple of films, and I want to announce the winner of the 35th anniversary Halloween Blu-ray giveaway that I ran on Twitter this week. First thing I saw this week was Julia Ducournau's new film, Titane. A young girl is involved in a car accident and a metal plate is inserted into the side of her head. As an adult, she becomes a serial killer who has sex with cars. And that's only scratching the surface of this bizarre tale of what it means to be family. Titane is an experience. It's a weird, surreal, challenging film that can be taken so many different ways. Agatha Rossell plays Alexia, a woman who seemingly hates her father and becomes a vicious serial killer. Her performance as this flawed character is daring yet subdued as she plays one character who begins to morph into somebody else completely. Vincent Linden plays Vincent, a firefighter who's also got a flawed past that he cannot move on from, compounded with deep-seated masculinity issues. Somehow, fate brings the two together, and it's super interesting to see how everything plays out, even if some of it makes little sense. I can't say much more without resorting to huge spoilers, so I'm going to leave it at that, but I will tell you, like, going in blind, you're going to have no idea where this is headed, and uh, it's super interesting how it gets from point A to point B. Both actors were fantastic, even if I didn't love the character of Alexia, but I'll speak more about that later. I've seen a lot of people online saying that Titane is an exploration of gender fluidity. But uh, to me it feels like more than that. I think it's about finding acceptance and love in others that need that missing puzzle piece, and in this case, it's familial love. Vincent's missing puzzle piece is a child, Alexa's a father figure. He's the first person we meet in the film that she doesn't immediately murder, and even though he doesn't know exactly who she is, he doesn't care. A pregnancy in the film can be seen as a stand-in for emotional baggage or rape, or we can just toss all the symbolism out the window and take her being impregnated by a fucking lowrider at face value. The film is beautifully shot on an atmosphere of pure dread, which is strange because it's not really a horror movie as much as it is a familial drama with a light dusting of Cronenberg-esque body horror. I actually thought that the body horror aspect was pretty tame and felt a little bit overblown in the marketing campaign, with blurbs from places like Yahoo proclaiming, Tatane is the bonkers body horror movie that's coming for all the Oscars. It's not as gross as it could have been, especially towards the end. Scenes like the opening car dance and the firefighting scenes were particularly striking, and I love the Future Island's needle drop in, uh, there's like a little dance scene inside of the fire station that was pretty awesome. As interesting as Tatane's tale is, it didn't really work for me, and most of that lies in Alexia being the protagonist. She has absolutely no charm, and her face is just a blank slate at all times. There was nothing making me want to root for her. She seemed like an annoying kid who turned into a despicable adult, and what we see of her parents on screen wasn't really that bad. As a filmmaker, you don't have to make your audience like an anti-hero, but you should give them a reason to root for them. I couldn't stand her character, so I felt nothing for her. Vincent was the most interesting character in the film, and I liked his arc, even if I didn't like his character after he went too far with one of his subordinates. Tatane is a work of art that I just can't connect to. It's a piece that I admire, but ultimately didn't like. I think there is an audience for this film. People who love a good character study, those uh, David Lynch fans, people who liked Raw, people who like walking out of the theater talking to people about what the fuck they just saw and what everything stood for. It just didn't work for me. I also dug into last month's Vinegar Syndrome box and pulled out 1989's Blades. Go. On. For the pros at Tall Grass, it's a game of big money and prestige.
0: We're going to have the finest tournament this golf course has ever seen. My God, we're talking TV, Roy.
1: A game where playing around implies much more than just 18 holes.
0: I think I like your shack better.
1: And a game where the term sudden death has very recently taken on a whole new meaning.
0: I've seen mutilations amputations and decapitations we're dealing with a maniac using some kind of a power tool his head has been severed from his shoulders what are we gonna do
1: now they are faced with the dilemma of whether to call off the tournament
0: absolutely not but you still don't know
1: what you're dealing with or confront the deadly killer <laughs> blades just when you thought it was safe to putt The Tallgrass Country Club is gearing up for its first televised Pro-Am golf tournament, which could bring in a lot of new members. In order to help their clout, they bring in a new instructor named Roy Kent, a once-proud golfer who's since succumbed to the bottle after bombing during a big professional tournament. But Roy Kent choking in the clutch is the least of Tallgrass' worries, because a killer runaway lawnmower is literally chewing golfers up and spitting them out. Yes, while other people on Halloween were watching classics like Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, I was watching Blades. Robert North, in his only acting credit, plays Roy Kent, a washed-up alcoholic ex-pro golfer who always has a worried look on his face that begs the question, was that fart just a little too wet? When he's not putting or dodging a killer lawnmower, he's dodging the club owner's wife who wants him to give her the old nine iron. Victoria Scott plays his love interest named Kelly Lang, a female golfer who expected to get the job that Roy was given. At first she's angry, but we know at some point they're gonna bone. Her only other acting credit is Unified Fund Mom in the 1996 film Kingpin, so I guess she's only interested in on-screen roles if the films center around sports that are really fucking boring. Together, these two doofuses drink at work and try and solve the mystery as to why golfers keep ending up mutilated in the sand traps, and once they link up with Deke Slade, an ex groundskeeper at the club, they go hunting. The deaths that happen on screen are few and far between and barely show anything. We get the view from the mower's point of view, low to the ground, winding through the weeds and grass until we reach the screaming dummy who didn't just move to the side, and then we cut to something else to hear the screams. Although we see the remnants, that part of the film is pretty lackluster. The film tries to be funny to support its absurd premise, but none of the jokes really landed for me. Continuous failed humor attempts include a police chief who constantly holds golf course meetings to assure people that everything is fine, an insane redneck mob that is deployed to find the culprit, and Norm, the clueless club owner whose wife is looking for a hole-in-one from good ol' Roy. I will give some credit to the director here. There are some occasional bursts of great imagery here, like the lawnmower silhouetted against the setting sun, and there's some pretty dynamic camera work as well. For a first time filmmaker, he seemed pretty skilled behind the lens. I can't say the same for the pen game, but who knows who was to blame for the terrible script seeing as three people have screenwriter credits on this one. How it took three people to write this film is simply beyond my level of comprehension. In terms of Jaws ripoffs and parodies, you could do a lot worse than Blades, although this kind of feels less like a parody and more like a reenactment with golf cards. It almost feels a little too grounded in reality. With a plot as bizarre as this, I think it could have been a lot more wild and definitely a little bit more fun. As far as goofy horror comedy films are concerned, there are better entries than this, but Blades was not a complete waste of time. Alright, Jim Hemphill is waiting in the wings today. Before we get to our sponsor, let's talk about the winner of the Force 5 Podcast Halloween giveaway. Congratulations to at Movies For Real on Twitter. Hit me up and I'll get that shipped out for you. Listeners, follow me on Twitter, at Force5Pod, because in November I'm planning yet another giveaway. So, again, at Movies For Real, congratulations, hit me up in the DMs. Now look, we're all getting a little bit older every day now. I looked down this week and I've got gray hairs growing in my beard and I can tell you right now, I'm not going to be a good looking old person. Truth is, most of us are going to look more like Grandpa Simpson than Paul Rudd, but thanks to today's sponsor, that might not need to be true anymore.
0: Imagine a world where you can reverse the effects of age, stress, and sun. From the leading name in biotechnology comes Regenerate. Another breakthrough from the Umbrella Corporation. Regenerate's revolutionary T-cell formula actually brings dead cells back to life. Now, your youthful beauty can last forever. Always consult your doctor before starting treatment. Some side effects may occur.
1: Head to the Umbrella Corporation in Raccoon City and tell them the Force 5 Podcast sent you for a free herb kit. Yes, simply mix the red herb and the green herb and it'll make you stop limping. The Umbrella Corporation, life is their business. Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast. Tonight, I'm joined by filmmaker and film historian Jim Hempill. He wrote and directed the amazing film, The Trouble with the Truth, which you can rent or buy on Amazon right now. And you can find Jim on Blu ray audio commentaries like Spike Lee's Jungle Fever, Nixon, Hang 'em High, and so many more. Jim Hempill, how are you tonight?
0: I'm great. Thanks for uh, having me.
1: Thanks for coming on. I'm so excited to have you on. I obviously I heard you on the Pure Cinema podcast, which you've been on a few times, and I thought you were an awesome guest. But I also learned in that episode that you wrote an essay on Robert Forster for the Walking the Edge disc from Fun City. And uh, first off, I want to commend you on the on the essay because it was awesome. And I wanted oh, to nice. ask you what your relationship was with Walking the Edge because it's I just watched it for the first time this year and I just fucking fell in love with it.
0: It's great. Yeah, I fell in love with it, I guess, now it's about 10 years ago. I actually, it's this is a, a funny story. You mentioned uh, the movie Trouble with the Truth that I directed. Before I made that movie with John Shea and Leah Thompson, there was actually another incarnation of it uh, a year or two earlier where I was going to do it with Robert Forster. So actually, oh. I and, and it ended up falling through and didn't happen, but I got to know him a little bit. And when I was working with him on trying to get the movie going with him starring in it, Uh, I kind of went on a big Robert Forster deep dive and just was trying to see every movie of his that I hadn't seen. And Walking the Edge was one of them. I mean, I don't even know if I had heard of it. And at the time, there was an Anchor Bay DVD of it out. And uh, it was just one of the ones I stumbled onto when I was kind of going on my self-taught robert forster uh course of study and and yeah i just i just loved it it always it always stayed with me and it's kind of a great it's kind of a great like middle period robert forster movie between his kind of you know rise in the late 60s and early 70s with stuff like medium cool and inflections and in golden eye and then his resurgence you know with jackie brown and almost because it, it, it's kind of one of his it's one of his great midlife crisis movies of which jackie <laughs> brown is probably the greatest
1: yeah, I loved it so much. I felt like the dialogue was just so real in that movie and instantly fell in love. And uh, yeah, I was surprised to see that this guy I was listening to on Pure Cinema was the person who wrote that essay. So I just wanted to uh, say that that was awesome. And uh, just another just another notch in your belt for uh, how excited I am to have you on today. Oh, thanks. Now, obviously, you're very accomplished in the film world, not only with your writing and directing, but you're also interviewing filmmakers What are some of your favorite films of all time?
0: I have... You know, it's funny. I knew you were going to ask me this because I have heard you ask (laughs) other guests. And I... uh, You know, whenever I am procrastinating, which is usually at least once a day, when I'm procrastinating whatever I should be writing, I always do... uh, I I make my top 10 list of my 10 favorite movies that day. Nice. And it... So I brought today's list with me. And it always... I would say there are about five or six that kind of the top five or six almost never change. They're kind of the the bottom three or four. You know those those tend to rotate. So uh, today's top ten list in rough order is Boogie Nights, mm-hmm. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, The Age of Innocence, The Shining, The Last Picture Show, The Godfather Part Two, uh, Point Break, The Bigelow Version, not the remake, uh, The Bridges Bridges of Madison County. The Magnificent Ambersons and Scarface, the De Palma version, not the Hard Hawks. So that's today's top ten. The, the and I would say Boogie Nights once, Boogie Nights, Age of Innocence, Shining. Well, here, here, it, actually, here's what I should say: Boogie Nights is always on there. Yeah, um, the, the Shining is always on there. The Last Picture Show is always on there, and then whatever Tarantino or Scorsese movie I watched last tends to be, <laughs> be on there because uh, with them I love pretty much everything, and they're my two favorite directors. So uh, that's kind of, uh, but yeah, Boogie Boogie Nights and Marty and Tarantino and The Shining and Last Picture Show. Those those are pretty much always the top five.
1: That's very similar to mine. Boogie Nights is also in my top five. And I'm always going to have one to two Tarantinos in there. So I definitely <laughs> appreciate that. A lot of variety in your list too, which is a good segue into today's topic. Because I feel like out of my top five, there is a pretty good variety. Now, of course, today we're going to be bucking the Halloween trend. We're going to be talking about top five underrated non-horror sequels. And I gotta tell you, really tough topic, which I will get into in a second. What was your inspiration for the topic?
0: Uh, you know, I, it was really that um, the funny thing. It's funny that we ended up doing non-horror because it kind of started with a horror movie. Uh, <laughs> it, it started with me thinking about talking about John Borman's *Exorcist II: The Heretic*, which is probably my favorite underrated sequel of all time. Although it's kind of gro- a cult has kind of grown around it. I mean, now I think you know there's still a lot of people who hate it but they're also it also has its uh it you know it has its disciples i don't feel quite as lonely loving it as i used to but um yeah. but there are a few you know there's just there's a few movies that i'll talk about them i mean really this was mostly motivated by my desire to talk about the top 2 movies on my top 5 which are two uh they're sequels to two of the greatest movies ever made i mean the movies they're sequels to are unquestionably uh two of the all-time classics. Um, and they are both fairly, barely even seen, let alone liked um, sequels that I think are actually almost the equal. In, in one case, I think it's almost the equal of its original. And in one case, I think it's actually superior to its original. And they're two movies I'm always sort of beating the drum for. So I thought, well, if I come up, if I do the topic of top five underrated sequels, it'll give me a chance to uh, talk about those. But I will admit, I had... Uh, I came up with about three of the five pretty quickly and pretty easily. And then the other two, it took me a while to uh, figure out what I was going to talk about.
1: It's interesting that you said Exorcist 2. I think Tarantino himself is a huge fan of Exorcist 2. And uh, yeah, that one and number three, I think are actually really good horror movies.
0: Three is terrific too, yeah.
1: Yeah. I've done horror movies on the show before, so that's kind of why we pivoted into non-horror. And uh, yeah, just, just tough. Have you ever considered writing a sequel for one of your own films like
0: show us what uh, Emily and Robert have been up to for the last ten years a la before sunset <laughs> you know it's funny i i I did think about that I mean it, it would be it's funny I did think about it thinking you know using the before sunrise sunset midnight uh series as a kind of you know model like I like that idea i always like i always like when filmmakers kind of revisit. Characters in that way, like in in movies that don't conventionally lend themselves to franchises like Truffaut's Antoine Doinel movies, you know, or mm-hmm. certainly or again, before sunrise and before sunset and before midnight, or when Bergman went and did the sequel to scenes for marriage, Sarah Band, all those, you know, decades later, I do like that a lot. And I had, um, I had a really bad idea for a sequel <laughs> to Trouble with the Truth, which was I had this idea that because uh, I, I, I was trying to figure out like how what, what the sequel would be if I were to ever do one. And my, my terrible idea that I dismissed pretty quickly was that Emily's husband, uh, that, that, it would, that her husband would die. And oh. that her and her and Robert would kind of like reunite at his funeral. But I, <laughs> I, I quickly realized that was a terrible idea for all kinds of reasons um, and, and and abandoned it pretty quickly. But, uh, and, and also there's the fact that the original was not exactly, uh, you know, a, a an enormous hit. I don't think anyone's clamoring for a, a sequel to it, but I, I, it's definitely something if I ever came up with a really good idea and if John and Leo were game, uh, I would enjoy revisiting those characters for sure.
1: I'll, uh... Stew on that myself and shoot you some. Yeah, if you ideas. come up with if you
0: come up with a good idea, send it to me.
1: All right, Jim, let's get to the list. You know
0: what's gonna happen? You know what's happening to you right now? I don't know what's gonna happen? Oh, no, no, no. no. What? you just made the list. <laughs> top, five, top, five. The top five,
1: top five, underrated non-horror sequels, and I, I, you know, I found myself in a tough spot because sequels often fall into either really, really good or really, really bad for me. And I find myself agreeing with the aggregate on most sequels, oddly enough, but I was able to pull a a solid list together. Uh, I've got one that's kind of outside of the box, so hopefully you let it stick around on the list. And also, unfortunately, <laughs> I uh, in preparation for this, I rewatched Cannonball Run 2, thinking that it might make the <laughs> list, but uh turned out to be a waste of time. So um that's a little background for my research. Did you limit yourself to anything when it came to the list? Did you like have any criteria that you wanted to stick to or was it just purely underrated?
0: I had I had a couple criteria one of which I almost immediately broke um because my my main criteria that I had initially set out for myself was that it had to be the sequels had to be movies that I thought were somewhat comparable to the original in terms of quality. So in other words like I like the movie Another Forty Eight Hours a lot, but I don't think it's anywhere near as good as Forty Eight Hours. So, right, I, that would be sort of disqualified. Um, th- that was one criteria I set, which I broke with my number five. The first movie I'm going to talk about <laughs> ki- kind of kind of breaks that rule, but it was it was one I wanted to talk about, um, and I think that was the main one. You know, the hardest thing for me was, you know, it's 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 kind of. Um, just even deciding what is underrated, I would say because I would say my number three choice when we get to that i will i it's one that I might be cheating a little bit with because I was always under the impression that no one but me really liked it that much, and then when I started researching it a little, I found that it it actually had gotten good reviews when it came out and did make some money so but i I'm still going to stand by my uh, assertion that it is underrated though in comparison to how fantastic it is but uh but yeah basically my main criteria that I, with the exception of my number 5 slot was that they had to be movies I thought were at least you know as good or close to as good as the originals.
1: Okay cool. Yeah I think really the only uh, the only factor for me was that the critic score and I I don't think Rotten Tomatoes is a perfect system but it's a good indicator of what people as a collective think is you know good and what's not. And that was my only real criteria, is that the Rotten Tomatoes score had to be less than the original, and one of my sequels on here doesn't even have a Rotten Tomatoes score, so that'll be (laughs) interesting when we get to it. But uh, let's get started here. Jim Hempill, what is number five on your list of underrated non-horror
0: sequels? Number five, sitting at a cool 0% on Rotten Tomatoes, is Staying Alive, the 1983 sequel to Saturday Night Fever.
1: It's five years later. It's another world.
0: You ain't got the moves for Broadway.
1: Oh, I ain't got the moves? It's a new challenge.
0: You want to dance here? You follow my rules. Because I'm going
1: to push you until you think you're going to die. And this time, it's going to be a whole different story. Way to go, man! John Travolta in a Sylvester Stallone film. Staying alive. The fever still burns. Rated PG. Now playing at a theater near you.
0: Uh, and this is the one that... I did cheat a little bit because I don't think it's anywhere near as good as Saturday Night Fever, but I do think it's a thoroughly entertaining movie. Um, And I think it is, I don't think it deserves its 0% uh, tomato meter rating. Uh, This movie was, you know, as, as most people probably know, stars John Travolta reprising his role as Tony Manero. And it is co-written, co-produced and directed by Sylvester Stallone. Uh, Mm -hmm. As far as I know, as uh, far as I know or can remember, it's the only movie he directed, wrote and directed that he is not in, although he does have a cameo role in it. And then he, uh, I know he also wrote a Jason Statham movie Homefront that he, he wasn't in, but he didn't direct that one. Um, anyway, and it's it's kind of an interesting companion piece in a way to another sequel that Stallone directed and wrote, Rocky III uh, and Rocky IV, because this was kind of this period where Stallone, he was, he'd kind of honed this style that... You know, at the time, I think critics really hated it It was he was very it was this very kind of MTV influenced style. His movies were were very montage oriented. They were kind of soundtracks in search of a story. Um, And that's one of the reasons they were trashed by the critics at the time. However, watching them now out of their time, I actually think they almost have this kind of weird, like abstracted quality. They're almost like weird art films in a way because they are so. Detached from like any sense of conventional <laughs> dramatic narrative, and you know, staying alive. Uh, he was it was actually Travolta's idea for Stallone to direct this movie because uh, Travolta had been a big fan of of Rocky Three, and they tried to talk Travolta into doing a sequel to Saturday Night Fever for years. I mean, really, right off the bat, when the first one was a hit, and he he always kind of resisted it, and then then he saw Rocky Three, and he said, "Well, if we could get somebody who could direct it like that." You know, I would do it, and so the studio said, "Well, let's just get him," and they got Stallone to do it. And um, you know, for people who haven't seen it, it's a very, very strange movie where Tony Monero, the hero, working class hero of the original, uh, move, you know, moves into the city to try to make it as a Broadway dancer. And the it's what's interesting about it to me. What kind of I think makes it a better movie than it does than its reputation would indicate. Is there's kind of an interesting thing they do with the Tony Monero character where in the first movie it's kind of about him being this the hot thing in his neighborhood and staying alive is kind of about this guy who goes from being the hot thing in his neighborhood to being the lowest rung on the ladder in you know a kind of bigger he basically goes from being the big fish in the small pond to being the almost non existent fish in, in a big ocean. And so the movie kind of like Travolta is very good at sort of playing this kind of ultra neurotic guy and the whole movie, what little story there is kind of revolves around him ping ponging between these two women who he can't, one of whom is perfectly decent and loves him and he, you know, can't commit to her because he wants the approval of this other one who, you know, really wants virtually nothing to do with him who's a big successful uh dancer and it all kind of takes place against the backdrop of this crazy broadway musical that travolta's character gets a part in called satan's alley and um (laughs) this musical which you know at the time the movie came out it was one of the objects of ridicule and people were kind of like well this doesn't resemble any broadway musical this thing is ridiculous um to which i say that's what makes it great. Like, you know, if I saw this thing on stage, I would stand up and applaud just like everybody knows the end <laughs> of this movie. It's like this really insane phantasmagoria that that is uh, designed. The production design of the movie is by Robert Boyle, who is kind of one of the all time great production designers. He did a lot of Hitchcock stuff like North by Northwest and the birds. Uh, he did Filler on the Roof. He did the original Cape Fear, all kinds of stuff. And Staying Alive's this the Satan's Alley thing you know basically takes up like the last twenty or thirty minutes of the movie is just this uh, stage play where it's Travolta in hell with and it's kind of like it's kind of influenced by Bob Fosse. There's you know I almost I've always thought all that jazz and Staying Alive would actually make a really interesting double feature. Mm-hmm. Um, and the but the you know the the thing I, I think the real reason this movie is on my list and and I would say it is. You know, it's the it's the least defensible of the movies. You know, it, it's definitely not as as great as some of the other ones. But what it has is it's it's kind of the last movie in which Travolta is operating at full star wattage in the mode that made him big initially. I mean, obviously, he he comes back in a different way. uh you know, 10 years later with Pulp Fiction. And then there's a whole other new period of great Travolta performances and face off and all those movies. Um, Yeah. But in terms of like the Travolta of the seventies, the pinup guy that, that everybody was into, this is like kind of the culmination of that. I mean, he is like ripped beyond belief. Like Stallone oversaw him on this intense workout regimen for five months so that he could uh, have this like incredible dancers body. And he just, oozes like charisma and this kind of like amazing physicality and the the, the dancing in the movie really is genuinely fantastic the choreography in it is great and stallone whatever you want to say about him as a director he knows how to sell icons he knows how to sell movie stars and it's interesting watching him do that with a movie star other than himself so I uh, am I'm, I'm, realize I'm rambling here, but that's my kind of uh, that's my long defense of staying alive being uh, at my number five
1: and an effective defense. I wow. I haven't seen this in a very long time and uh, maybe it might be time to revisit it with my wife because I can guarantee she's never seen it. I all I really remember is that the soundtrack was like mostly Bee Gees. And when it wasn't the Bee Gees, it was Sylvester Stallone's brother. I songs. forgot to, I
0: forgot to mention Frank Stallone yes the <laughs> soundtrack uh, yeah I, I had the I have I still have my vinyl copy of the soundtrack from when it came out and one side of the soundtrack is all Bee Gees the other side is all songs either sung by and or written by Frank Stallone I remember at the time the movie came out there was actually a great Mad Magazine cartoon where two people were standing outside a movie theater that Staying Alive was playing at and one person says to the other one uh, I heard that Frank Stallone beat out 600 other applicants to do the music for this movie. And the other guy says, Oh, I didn't realize Sylvester Stallone had that many brothers. Um, <laughs> but he's, uh, but I actually, that's, yeah, the Stallone, Frank Stallone theme song, uh, Far From Over, uh, is. I, I think quite a catchy uh tune that they play throughout the movie. So I, I would defend I would defend Frank Stallone, not only Frank Stallone's songs in the movie, which are, are awfully catchy, uh, but his performance as a kind of uh like this guitarist who the Cynthia Rhodes character has a kind of friendship with and Travolta is like insanely jealous of and, and Stallone, I think Frank Stallone has about three lines in the entire movie, but he's kind of always lurking around on the edges of the frame, and he's a, he's a really funny presence. <laughs> but uh, but yes, that is that is that was another thing that I think was the nail in its critical coffin was uh, Sylvester Stallone giving his brother uh, equal time on the soundtrack with the Bee Gees.
1: Well, a, a solid defense of staying alive from nineteen eighty three. My number five is the one that I'm least confident about on my list. Uh, it's the one, just like yours, that I think is probably the going to be the toughest for me to defend. But I will say that I really, really enjoyed it, and I think it does what a good sequel is supposed to do. Double down on what happened in the first one. This is from 1996. It is a very Brady sequel. Summer's almost over. School's about to begin back the flower church we're going to hawaii
0: i decide before it's too late take a brady break i'll go first because i'm the prettiest <laughs> oh, oh alice are you the skinny decaf mochaccino
1: hey what are you calling skinny paramount pictures presents
0: i'll make up an imaginary boyfriend <gasps> a very brady sequel i'm so happy for you Jim. really marcia no rated pg-13
1: there are a lot of 1970s tv shows that have gotten films Recently, we had Chips, which was an absolute disaster. Uh, Starsky and Hutch, for example. And the Brady Bunch movie from 95 might be one of the most unnecessary films based on a TV show, which I still thought was entertaining. I was like 13 or 14 when I saw it. But, uh, you know, you watch the Brady Bunch movie and it's like, oh, that's pretty funny. And you get this 70s family in the 90s, but definitely didn't feel like it needed a sequel. And then in Walked, A very Brady sequel. And it was way better than I think it had any right to be. Arlene Sanford directed it. She really didn't direct anything as high profile as this again. And I don't know if it's just because the movie kind of bombed, both critically and at the box office. It made like half as much as the original Brady Bunch movie did. But there are a couple things that I appreciate about a very Brady sequel. First off, unlike so many sequels, the plot is not just a retread of the first film. The premise is very stupid, but I mean that's par for the course. It's a Brady Bunch film, but it centers around this guy who played by Tim Matheson, who knocks on the Brady's door. He walks in. He claims that he's Carol's first husband, and that he had amnesia. And of course, uh, like Carol Brady doesn't recognize him, and he said it was an accident with an elephant. Everybody's so dumb, but they're so wholesome and naive that they bring him in anyway, and you know they get to know him and. The Bradys are going to Hawaii because they're going to renew their vows and they invite this guy along. And the whole time, obviously he has nefarious intentions. So new plot, there's some, I mean, you watch it now, it's, it's kind of bizarre, but there are some really funny scenes regarding Greg and Marsha and possible incest vibes that work in the context of the film, because they have to share the attic together as a, Mm -hmm. as a bedroom with like just a simple sheet in between. And there's some really funny moments there. There's also some dance number stuff that's pretty funny because unlike the original, this one really, really goes for the wackiness and the it leans into this 70s family living in this transitional period of the mid-90s as we step into the era of the boy bands and Limp Bizkit and like rap metal. And it, and it really does go for that. There's, uh, there's this dance number that They're just walking through a shopping center and the people behind them, instead of, you know, in a traditional dance movie where everybody's in on it, the the passers-by are just like, what the hell are these people doing? (laughs) And uh, there's another scene where they just break into song on the plane to Hawaii and everybody is sitting there like, shut the hell up. Like we've all been on those flights where there's somebody with their with their volume up and finally the uh, the stewardess gets on the horn and she's like, the family that's dancing around in the aisles, shut up and sit <laughs> down. And I, I really thought that was uh, a good touch. Again, it grossed less than half of what the original did. The original on Rotten Tomatoes, 62%, this one at 53%, but I think that it was better than the original. And I don't know that I'll ever watch a Brady... A very Brady sequel again, but I'll tell you I will watch it before I watch the original
0: i I actually think you should not be so apologetic about i mean, I think a very Brady sequel is a great movie for all the reasons you've said i mean i actually uh the only reason it's not on my list is I think I like it so much uh that I was ignorant of the fact that other people don't like it. I just assumed <laughs> I thought I thought its greatness was sort of undeniable. Um I I actually liked the first one too. I mean I think the first one I, I, I thought was I just thought the, it was kind of amazing in terms of the way they replicated the production design and everything of the original. Oh, yeah. But I agree with you. But I agree with you. The sequel it 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 does just take it to a whole nother level and I, I agree with everything you say about it. I think it's the, the it's a hilarious movie. And Tim Matheson should have got a Best Supporting Actor nomination for it, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I thought he, he's he's one of my favorite actors anyway, but I think he's just great in that movie. But yeah, I, I'm 100% with you on a very great, pretty sequel. I'm glad to
1: hear that. Yeah, Tim Matheson is great in it, as is everybody else that was in the yeah. first Brady Munch movie. Christine Taylor as Marsha Brady, mm-hmm. just a standout. Fantastic. And Gary Cole, too, as as Mike. Yeah. So.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's my number five. A very Brady sequel. My number four is more American Graffiti from 1979. It's more
1: American Graffiti. What's you
0: idiots! Hey, come on,
1: all you big strong men, Uncle hey, Sam. No. They're older and wiser, and just as crazy. It's
0: all here. I'm in Vietnam. Uncle Sam says I need the toad.
1: Terry the toads in Vietnam. Steve and Lori are happily married you're... Debbie's different you're pregnant I'm in love John is the same
0: I'm John Milner, the owner-driver of this car here And this is our team t-shirt I'd be deeply honored if you wore it She's a foreigner, John well, It's my last shirt, sure too <laughs> One more word out of your commie mouth, kid I'll ring your neck Sorry, I... turn around there. I voted Republican can control it! Get away from the trees! Get-
1: More American graffiti. The bittersweet times. The crazy times. And all of it unforgettable.
0: A man is not a housewife. A woman is a housewife. Ron Howard. Having a party tonight, and my mother loved being a housewife. And
1: my mother loved being a mother. And I'm coming to pick you up right now. Do you
0: understand that? You know, it's interesting when you are saying about Very Brady's sequel, you know, that it was kind of does what a sequel supposed to do in terms of being, you know, more of what you know more of what the first one did you know like there 's I feel like there kind of tend to be two kinds of sequels there 's the do the same thing again, but more of it, which is <laughs> yeah. you know tends to be what most of them are, and then every once in a while you get these sequels, and more American graffiti is one where the filmmakers kind of take advantage of the leverage afforded them by the success of the original to try to do something like totally different and bold and experimental and um, in the case of *More American Graffiti, you know, it was a sequel that no one was really clamoring for. But after Star Wars was such a big hit, Universal re-released the original American Graffiti to kind of capitalize on George Lucas's name. And it was, you know, made a bunch of money on its reissue. And so they had this idea they wanted to do a sequel. And, and evidently Lucas wasn't really crazy about the idea, but they told him they were going to make it with or without him. And he also owed them a movie contractually from the deal he made for the first American Graffiti. So kind of it was kind of an easy way for him to burn off the contractual obligation he had if he did the sequel. Now, the sequel is Lucas came up with the basic story for the sequel, but he didn't want to direct it. He hired a guy named Bill Norton to write and direct it. Um Bill Norton is a very interesting filmmaker, probably best known for writing Sam Peckinpah's Convoy. Uh and he also mm-hmm. wrote the he also wrote the Curtis Hanson directed teen sex comedy Losing It with Tom Cruise. The only feature he had directed before *More American Graffiti* was *Cisco Pike*, which came out in 1972 and had Chris Christopherson. It kind of has a cult following now, but at the time it came out, it was a good movie that was not successful, which kind of made him the perfect person for Lucas to hire because Lucas wanted he wanted a good director, but he wanted somebody who he had power over and could kind of push around a little bit. I think, and (laughs) from all from all reports, Lucas did you know he kind of looked over his shoulder. He kind of. In, interfered with the editing a lot. He directed a lot of the movie himself. So it's kind of a weird hybrid. I'm not sure how much is Bill Norton and how much is George Lucas. But regardless of all that, it's a completely fascinating movie because, you know, the first American Graffiti, and I'm sure a lot of people are saying this have seen it, but, you know, basically it all takes place on one night in, uh, in, I think, 1962, something like that. And um, it poses an interesting problem for a sequel because the end, the last thing you see in American Graffiti are these credit things where these end titles, where they tell you what happens to all the characters. So in a way, making a sequel, you're kind of written into a corner where you have to do, there are two problems. One is you have to do what the first movie told you happens to all the characters, but then also you have to make that interesting when people know where it's going. And so the solution that Lucas came up with is the the sort of momentum and tension in the movie does not really come so much from the story as from the form. The movie has this very weird format where it's four different stories. He picks up the different characters from the original. Everybody comes back except for Richard Dreyfus. Even Harrison Ford is in it, post-Star Wars. Um, everybody else but Richard Dreyfus came back, and they they are all in these four different stories that each take place on a different New Year's Eve. It's like New Year's Eve nineteen sixty. I think 1964, five, six, and seven, or it's or it's five, six, seven, and eight, something like that. Um, but anyway, it's four New Year's Eves in a row, all intercut. So the movie's jumping back and forth between them the whole time. Uh, one of them is Toad, the Charlie's Martin Smith character, going to Vietnam. So it takes place in Vietnam. It's shot in a like one three three aspect ratio in like grainy sixteen millimeter. Then there's a story with Paul Lamatt's character as like a hot rod driver, and it's sort of like a Roger Corman type. Racing movie, and that one's shot in cinemascope. Um, then the other one with with Ron Howard and Cindy Williams as like a married couple, and it's sort of a domestic drama is shot in yet a different aspect ratio. It's one eight five. And then you got one with Candy Clark's character, sort of it, it, in like San Francisco at the height of like the free love movement and all that kind of stuff, and it's shot in split screen. So you have like four different stories, four different time periods, in four different aspect ratios. And it's almost like a Christopher Nolan-esque experiment with time in movies <laughs> or something. Because they drop in and out of each other's stories and it's it's going back and forth and all this stuff. And it has this weird structure that Bill Norton came up with. Like the different, the different styles and formats was Lucas's idea. And then Norton came up with this structure where he structured the whole movie. He wrote like 24 scenes or something like that. I don't remember exactly how many. But he, he had like a certain number of scenes that were each supposed to be the length of the songs that he was using. And I don't know if he, he didn't actually stick to it, but it, but it has this very, it's got this very like mathematical precision to the structure. And so it's, it's, again, it's really just kind of like this huge experimental film done on Universal's dime. And it was not very well liked at the time it came out. Um, You know, it just kind of, I think because it was so different, You know, nobody was really interested because if you compare it, it didn't it it had none of the sort of it it didn't really have like the warmth um, and humor of the original movie. But I still think as its own thing and as a bold big studio experiment, um, it's it's a really interesting movie that's that should be better known than it is.
1: I, I think I saw it a very, very long time ago. And I think the only thing I remember is that the end credits are the exact same cards from the first movie,
0: right? <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't know if they're all exact <laughs> I don't know if they're all exactly the same, but some of them are. And yeah, yeah, so that's a whole very weird thing too, is essentially like, yeah, the whole movie kind of leads up to uh what you get in the end title cards of the original. So it's a very it's a very, very strange, but in my opinion, very cool experiment.
1: That's a that's an interesting choice. That's like uh Dunkirk before Dunkirk, like you exactly. said, playing with yeah. time. That's so cool. And it's neat that they went as experimental as they did considering how popular the first one was.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I think again, the only reason that happened was because Lucas was riding high off of Star Wars. They they wanted the movie. They would have I think Universal would have given him the money to make 90 minutes of black leader and call it more American <laughs> graffiti. Um, you know, and I, and I really love when filmmakers do that. I mean, it's, there's another, another sequel that does something similar that I'm not going to mention just yet, just on the off chance it happens to be on your list. It's it's not on <laughs> mine, but, it, but it's, yeah, I always, I really love when filmmakers kind of, uh, and we talked a little bit about Exorcist too. And in a way I feel like John Borman kind of did, that's also like a, a basically a big budget experimental studio film, which would never have been made if it didn't have that, uh, that name behind it
1: yeah that's a great choice at number four that's uh more american graffiti from what 79
0: yes 79
1: my next one is definitely the most out of the box on here and uh it's gonna be the hardest one for people to see although there is a copy on youtube that people can check out the film is called the star-crossed romance of josephine kosnowski it's from 1985 Now, most people don't know that there was a theatrical sequel to the 1983 seasonal classic A Christmas Story. It was called It Runs in the Family. It came out in 1994, and then it did so terribly because nobody knew with that name that it was a sequel to A Christmas Story, that it was retitled My Summer Story for home video. And a lot of people don't understand that there are actually seven films in the Ralphie Parker cinematic universe, as I have dubbed it, are you aware that there were so many sequels to a Christmas story?
0: I had no idea. I knew about uh the the summer story. I hadn't I've never heard of any of these others. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well,
1: uh this one and a, a couple of the other ones are TV movies, uh-huh. which is I'm I'm counting for this list cuz I think this needs to be mentioned. And Thanksgiving is coming up and that's what this one revolves around. A Christmas Story was like the third movie in the series. The first was called The Phantom of the Open Hearth. That one came out in 1976. And uh, all the same narrator, Gene Shepard. But he started these on a program on PBS called American Playhouse. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that one came first. The second one, which I actually think is pretty good, but did not qualify for this list because it came out first, was called The Great American Fourth of July and Other Disasters. And starred Matt Dillon as Ralph Parker as a teenager. Wow. And then we, yeah, that was in 82. And then in 83, A Christmas Story came out and just like, obviously was immensely popular. And um, oh, what's the, I'm blanking on his name now, but Peter. Um, Billingsley. Yes, Peter Billingsley playing Ralphie. Very iconic character now. But two years later, a film called The Star-Crossed Romance of Josephine Kozanowski comes out. On uh, American Playhouse. Now, American Playhouse was essentially a place where filmmakers could do experimental stuff on PBS, and they had a lot of really great actors or directors get their start there. Ben Stiller got his start there. John Malkovich got his start there. Uh, Eric Roberts, Megan Mullaly, all kinds of really great people were in these productions on American Playhouse. But um, they also had uh, Thin Blue Line, the documentary by um, Errol Morris, was originally aired on there so a lot of really good stuff and one of these was this film star crossed romance and it tried to do for thanksgiving what the first theatrical film did for christmas films it was directed by fred Barzik, who primarily did made for tv stuff um, but it was written and narrated by gene Shepard. so that familiar presence is throughout all of these until you get to the much later ones like christmas story 2 which is just an absolute disaster like most of the films in this series, it's it still follows the same different stories in the Parker family. The main story is, of course, this romance. It's a teenage romance between Ralphie and his Polish neighbor who just moved in from Chicago. Hence the title riffing on Shakespeare. But we also get to see his dad trying to buy a new car, or the old man, as he calls him, the old man trying to buy a new car. And then Randy, who was dressed up in a rabbit costume, of course, in Christmas Story, is here playing the turkey in his school's Thanksgiving Day play. So they're trying to bring that those familiar elements back to this one here. The weakest part of this, I think, is the casting, specifically Peter Kowanko, who's playing the teenage version of Ralphie, who is definitely the third best Ralphie behind Dylan and Billingsley. And the old man is played by George Coe because uh, the person who played the original old man was passed away by this point. And and George Coe is really bad. He just did not get the vibe. But the rest of the cast is pretty good. And there are some returning characters from the the Christmas Story theatrical version. And uh, I think the film is well written for the most part. Now, I say for the most part because as you watch this now in 2021, there are some problematic elements here. It definitely objectifies women. But if you like a Christmas story and want more of the same characters and vibe, I do think this is a solid entry. It also is the definition of underseen and underrated because, like, literally, <laughs> I went on Letterboxed to see, uh-huh. like, does anybody else like this movie? And there's, like, four entries under this of people <laughs> who have seen it. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, definitely it's, it's uh, pretty wild. But if you're a fan of A Christmas Story... Don't watch My Summer Story. That, that movie is just trash. Uh, watch this one. And then there are a couple other ones that came after this one. Ollie Hop Noodles Haven of Bliss was <laughs> like, yeah, I know, just a bonkers title. That one was a partnership with Disney and with American Playhouse and uh, features Jerry O'Connell in that one <laughs> as, as Ralph. Wow. The sequel to A Christmas Story.
0: All right, well, I'll have to seek that out. I'm I I've, I've, was totally unaware of the Christmas story, the Ralphie uh, universe or multiverse, or whatever you want to call it. But I, uh, but I'm a big fan of American Playhouse. I mean, that was you know, I remember uh, Jonathan Demme did a thing for them called "Who Am I This Time" with Christopher Walken and Susan Sarandon. That was like one of my sort of favorite independent films of the '80s. I mean, were, it was a really great showcase for stuff. So I, I definitely have to check that out.
1: Yeah, and you can find a a copy on YouTube. I mean, it's the quality that you would expect from a -hmm. a VHS rip of a TV show that's been then ripped to YouTube, but uh, it's still watchable.
0: All right, so my number three is the one that is a slight cheat because uh, it got okay reviews and made some money, so it's not totally unappreciated like the others on my list, but again, I think it is underrated, in relation to how unbelievably fantastic it is. And the movie is 2015's Magic Mike XXL. God, I'm on. I Seriously. that's night. I oh, love <laughs> <it>. <laughs> I wish we had known you guys back in our day. <laughs> you know? Well, I'd say it's still your day, man. Stand up. Oh, no. Come on. Stand <laughs> up. Oh, no. hey. <laughs> oh my God, oh, just look at you. You are just perfect. Damn. <laughs> oh God. Oh, damn. damn, look at you. I hate to be rude, but...
1: You want to pop the hood?
0: Oh! <laughs> Directed by Gregory Jacobs, Steven Soderbergh's long-time AD, and photographed and edited by Soderbergh himself under his uh, usual pseudonyms, Peter Andrews and Marianne Bernard, uh, written by Reed Carolyn, who also wrote the first Magic Mike. So Magic Mike XXL is, it, it's it's kind of similar to the situation with More American Graffiti in a way, not, not that they go full experimental with it, but basically, you know, the original Magic Mike was a, a kind of surprise success, at least, you know, I don't know if maybe it wasn't a surprise to Channing Tatum and... Steven Soderbergh but you know the original they had self-financed and made it a budget of somewhere around 6 million bucks sold it to Warner Brothers and the thing came out and made over 100 million dollars it was a smash hit so yeah. after that first one was a big hit they they you know again had kind of the leverage to do whatever they wanted with the sequel and what they did is essentially Magic Mike XXL is just 2 hours of pure cinematic exuberance and nothing else. There's like barely any story to it. It's just the guy, the male strippers from the first movie go on a road trip to go to this like stripper convention where they're going to perform and it's kind of like a get the band back together one last time thing. Um but really all the story is, you know, is just a sort of thin line to hang one exuberant musical number after another on and it's one of those movies where i, I you can feel the enthusiasm of the, of everyone making it and appearing in it is so infectious um you know there's like jada pink i mean basically you've got the guys from the original you've got channing tatum and joe Manginello and uh oh my gosh i'm blanking on the other guys names but um you got
1: like kevin nash in there
0: Yeah. And, um, Oh God, the guy from the last tycoon TV series. Now I don't know. I can't believe I'm blanking on it, but anyway, they're all Boomer, That's it. Yeah. So those guys are all back. Uh, no Matthew McConaughey. He didn't come back, but the other guys came back and, um, you know, they're all, they're all great. There is a musical number where Joe Manginello strips in a convenience store to the backstreet (laughs) boys. I want it that way. That is, in my opinion, on a par with Gene Kelly uh, dancing with his umbrella and singing in the rain. I mean, this is like one of the great sort of just unbridled acts of cinematic enthusiasm that anyone has ever done. And But along the way, they meet all of these. It's got this kind of episodic structure where they meet these different women. And the women are all fantastic. I mean, you've got... Andy McDowell kind of reuniting with Soderbergh uh, after Sex, Lies, and videotape. Um, you know, another one of the things that kind of passes for plot in this movie is there's a, a, this plot line where Joe Manganiello's penis is so enormous that no woman can can handle it. And so he's looking, <laughs> he's looking for what he calls the glass slipper. And uh, he finds it with Andy McDowell, her vagina is the glass slipper. Um, <laughs> and you kind of feel these actresses like Andy McDowell and Jada Pinkett, who's also great. Um, you really feel them kind of cutting loose, and it's it's almost like everybody in the movie you you feel that they're taking whatever they held back in every studio movie and network TV show they ever were on, and they're just letting it out in this. I mean, Michael Strahan of all people plays a stripper in one scene. And I can't believe they let the man on morning television now <laughs> after what he does in this movie. Cause it's pretty, it's pretty insane. Um, and so, yeah, I just, it's just a movie that I think is just, uh, you know, it's, it's the, the actors feel liberated, you know, the, Gregory Jacobs and Soderbergh feel liberated and it's just a liberating experience for the audience. I think it's just a, uh, again, virtually no story, just spectacle, but, um, but also the cinematography, Because Soderbergh is, he's operating the camera, he's the cinematographer, but he's got Gregory Jacobs kind of taking over as director. I feel like it's got some of Soderbergh's most fluid and elegant cinematography because he's focusing a little more on that than maybe on the things where he's uh, signing them himself as a director. So uh, that's my case for Magic Mike XXL.
1: You can kind of thank my wife for this one getting made because I think half the money that the first (laughs) one made was because of her. Uh, Channing Tatum dancing around is always going to get my wife into a seat, and frankly, me <laughs> as well. This this is really, like you said, there's really very little conflict, but it's a great hangout movie in the same mm-hmm. ways that like Dazed and Confused is a great hangout movie. Yeah. And uh, you're right, it is a great road movie. It's also kind of nice that sexuality is just played as like an exciting thing. You know, it's yeah. There's no negativity to the sexuality and. There's an importance in the emotional satisfaction of both men and women and just a a really fun time at the movies and that uh, convenience store dance. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's a winner. It's a winner. That's a great choice. One that didn't come up uh, in my in my thought process, just because, uh, like you said, a lot of critics liked it. But definitely, I would say it's underrated compared to the original. And I think a lot of people that saw the original haven't seen this one so if you've seen the original and you like it here's yeah more. and
0: I, th- I think it's far superior i mean i like the original but the original is more like a con- sort of conventional saturday night fever kind of movie and this one is just again just just lets it rip and is just yeah non-stop thoroughly entertaining and it's a great point you made about how the the sexuality in the movie how it's just like so positive and liberating and and it is like sort of the whole idea of the movie is how important it is for both the men and the women to uh be satisfied and by extension the movie satisfies the audience so it's 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 a great movie
1: indeed we're gonna go a completely opposite direction for my number three we're gonna go to the animated world of disney <laughs> the original peter pan was 78 percent, but i'm gonna make my case for return to neverland from 2002 at 45 percent being better mm. than the original
0: There's a land you've always believed in, a boy who's never grown up, and an all-new movie coming only to theaters. Peter Pan is back with all-new characters
1: and new music. Peter Pan in Disney's Return to Neverland, rated G. The all-new adventure begins February 15th. I'm going to say this straight off the top. I dislike Peter Pan. (laughs) I dislike Peter Pan, the character. I really don't think the first one is a good movie. And I think that the second one, Neverland, even though Neverland is two words in the title, which has always bugged me, I think it's better in every way. Uh, First off, it features the song All Try by Jonathan Brook, which, in my opinion, is one of the top 10 Disney animated songs of all time. Talk about underrated. I think that song is terribly underrated in the Disney canon. I love it. And every time my kid watches this movie, I can't help but sit there and listen to this song. So I'll try, great song. Now for a kid's film, this deals with some very mature things. So it takes place, I think like 20 something years after the original. Wendy is now a grown up. She's got two kids, but it takes place during World War II, during the Blitzkrieg, and her husband is in the war. Now, because she's grown up during the war, her daughter Jane does not believe in stories and fantasies She's very straight-laced, very real world. And this is a problem that she has to work through because Captain Hook mistakes her for Wendy and abducts her to use her as a trap for Peter Pan. So, ostensibly, this is a film about a child who's been forced to grow up too quickly. And, I mean, the the night she's abducted, like, she's literally packed to escape Nazis the next day. That's, like, the, the territory this film is going into. And there's an interesting moment in... Return to Neverland where Jane sides with Captain Hook at one point because she identifies more with his sensibilities. And I think that part is really interesting. Now, it's not a perfect movie. Captain Hook is way more over the top cartoonish, if you can even imagine that, which I think is to the film's detriment. And Peter Pan still sucks. He's <laughs> he's now he's less childish in this one. And he is funnier. But I I still hate Peter Pan. But Jane, as a character, really makes the movie There is also a very sweet moment when Peter Pan sees Wendy for the first time in what must have been 20, 25 years. And if that doesn't get your heartstrings going, I don't know what will. In the end, Return to Neverland is really a lesson about the fact that it's okay to be mature and still believe in fantasies and stories and fables. And I really like that aspect, plus the song. So Return to Neverland, 2002, better than 1953's Peter Pan.
0: Hmm, okay, I have not seen it, but I've been very curious. You know, I've got Disney Plus now, and mm-hmm. they've got all of these, uh, you know, sort of straight to video sequels and things that to the animated movies. And I've I've been curious to check some of them out, so I will uh, I will take a look at that one.
1: Yeah, there's two that I think are pretty good: Return to Neverland, and then one that didn't make my list: Rescuers Down Under.
0: Oh, that's a great movie! Yeah, yeah, Res- Rescuers Down Under is great. Okay, number two. Now we get into the my top two are not just two of my favorite underrated sequels. These are two of my favorite movies of all time. And number two uh, is from 1990, the sequel to Chinatown, The Two Jakes. If you
1: want to know what being a detective on the 48 Berman case was like, picture a steak on a table. Oh, you're going to make me do it, aren't you? Surrounded by 12 starving convicts with butcher knives. Treat or treat. Now the lights go out. Me? I'm the onion rings. Jack Nicholson.
0: Somebody call an ambulance!
1: The Two Jakes. Rated R. Starts Friday, August 10th at theaters everywhere.
0: And I'm going to say right here, this is a movie I think uh, is better than Chinatown. so if, if, wow. if, you you, if you thought you were being bold uh, <laughs> saying that Return to Neverland was better than Peter Pan. Uh, and I love Chinatown. I think Chinatown is a fantastic movie. I think that um, The Two Jakes is an even richer, more profound, more anguished, uh, beautiful film in, in a lot of ways. Um, this was a movie that had a very tortured production history. And I think that might have something to do with why it wasn't well received when it came out. I think people were kind of reviewing what they had read in the trades and not the movie. Um, you know, it was written like the first one by Robert town, another great Robert town script and town was originally going to direct it. They were going to do it somewhere in the mid eighties, um, with town, town directing and in a very bizarre, uh, choice. I don't really, I don't remember. I'm not sure what led to this, but, uh, The producer, Robert Evans, who had produced the original, was going to star in the two Jakes opposite Jack Nicholson as the other Jake, the character that was (laughs) ultimately played by Harvey Keitel. And basically, Town was going to write and direct, Evans was going to star opposite Nicholson, and they got to the point where the sets had been built and the crew was standing by. They were about to shoot when Paramount pulled the plug because uh, everybody kind of lost confidence in Evans as an actor and in... Town as a director, he was coming off of I don't, you know, I think personal best had not done well and, you know, there were there were a lot of things, and so anyway it was a movie that, Paramount had a few million bucks into it in the 80s, and they were literally uh, you know, people were like driving to the set when the the plug got pulled, but Nicholson, just, Nicholson just wouldn't let it go, and he ended up, and he tried to get other people to direct it because he didn't really want to direct it. He tried to get Bertolucci to direct it. He tried to get Mike Nichols to direct it. Uh, Polanski, the director of the original, was uh, not available to direct it because he was, uh, you know, in France and <laughs> could not come back to this country. And he couldn't really couldn't really shoot two Jakes anywhere other than L.A. So, uh, so Nicholson ultimately, just to get the movie made, decided to direct it. And I'm actually a big fan of Jack Nicholson as a director in general. I really like Drive. You said. And I really like Going South, the Western comedy that he directed with Mary Steenburgen and John Belushi. Um, But this is his masterpiece. And it is, I think, I think another reason it wasn't that well received at the time and wasn't that popular at the time is it was a it was a somewhat belated sequel. The original had come out something like 16 years earlier. And you have to have kind of an intimate knowledge of Chinatown to get the most out of Two Jakes. I mean, it is very intricately interwoven with the plot for Chinatown. So I think when it came out in 1990, probably a lot of people hadn't seen Chinatown in a while. And thus found this movie incredibly confusing um, because it is a really labyrinthine plot. Um, But it's an interesting movie because the Jake Gittes character that Nicholson plays in this, you know, in in this movie, he has become middle-aged and he's kind of soft and he's, he's successful. He owns now his own, like a big private investigation company where he oversees other investigators and he's, belongs to a country club and I think there's almost this kind of like personal aspect to it for Nicholson it's almost like you know he at this point had become a big movie star and maybe was getting comfortable and you know wasn't quite the the young scrapper that he was 20 years <laughs> earlier just like Jake Giddis. and it's um, but it's really a movie about this guy who is still very haunted by the events of the original movie and they the events of the original movie come back into his life in a way that is just just absolutely ingenious and it's kind of hard to explain without giving away a lot of stuff and it's also just hard to explain because it's so unbelievably complicated i mean it is one of the things i like about the movie is that the plotting is so complicated that even though i've seen the movie 14 or 15 times there are still parts of the movie when i watch it again where i can't remember what something has to do with something else. I'll watch it and I'll be like, no, wait a second. You know, and I I always, I always get it by the end, but then I forget some of it by the time I see it again, because it's just so complicated, but it's all, I mean, the town script is just absolutely brilliant because it satisfies all of these demands of a whodunit, but it does it in ways that are so unconventional and not, you know, like I always, I often think when I watch genre movies like why do they all have to have the same final act like for example you know comic book movies like marvel movies I feel like they often the last 30 minutes of them are often almost interchangeable Sure Two Jakes is a movie that is working within recognizable genres but it genuinely is working out the internal tensions of its characters through the genre in such an original way that it never, there's not a cliche in it. I mean, like the the whole, and, and it's, and it's a very interesting meditation on justice and guilt and like, and punishment and, you know, like whether or not who in the movie is really the villain and who's really guilty. And it's just incredibly nuanced. And it's an incredibly adult movie about, the choices we make and about, about moral choices and about regret and about whether or not you can correct the mistakes of the past. And it's, it's just, I think it's just one of the greatest movies ever made period sequel or not. And I think it is a movie whose screenplay should be taught in every film school. I mean, I just, I just think it's again, so elaborate, so complex and yet ultimately so clear and satisfying and um, just, and, and 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 very you know it it, very interesting in the way that it is tied to the original movie and yet is its own thing and nicholson finds his own style that's different from polanski's style but is appropriate to the way the jake Giddis character has changed i mean just again going back to the aspect ratio thing you know polanski's original movie was in scope this one is 185 it's more constricted because that's the way this character is now he's his life is more constricted around it and uh and it's just got a hell of a supporting cast too i mean david keith is great in it you've got madeline stowe is is fantastic McTilly uh and and harvey keitel uh who was originally going to be in the two jakes when they were shooting in the 80s in a smaller part and got bumped up he got promoted when they got rid of robert evans and plays the second lead and he's just fantastic too it's it's a really great movie
1: I have never seen the two Jakes and I need to put this on my list. You've sold me on it. I mean, saying that they should make you study the screenplay. I had to study the screenplay for Chinatown when I went to film school. Yeah.
0: I I honestly think this one's just as good if, I mean, I, you know, I'm probably setting it up too much saying it's, it's better, but it is certainly worthy. And I would recommend though, however, to anyone watching it, if you are not intimately familiar with Chinatown, watch it right before you watch, because it, 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 it is a requirement. This is not, this is not a standalone sequel <laughs> at all.
1: Okay, all right. So uh, I will have to refresh myself and then watch The Two Jakes. My number two here is also one of my favorite sequels, and critics just absolutely shit on this one. And it's, it's tough because it was the sequel to one of 1984's biggest films, Beverly Hills Cop. Beverly Hills Cop 2 from 1987. I'm going deep, 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 deep undercover. Axel Foley is back.
0: Yeah. Hey, look, man, I'm a businessman, okay? I gotta make moves. I'm moving. Get me out.
1: He's Detroit's gift to Beverly Hills. How long would it take to shave those legs anyway? Get out of here, you degenerate. I want you
0: out of here. Is this a black thing? <sighs> oh, this is a big mistake, a big mistake. Eddie Murphy, Beverly Hills
1: Cop hey! 2. Radar. <laughs> Critics did not like it. I love Beverly Hills Cop 2. Now, there are some detractors because the plot is basically a rehash of the first. This is definitely not like the other titles on our list, like the Very Brady sequel or Magic Mike XXL, where it just goes in a completely different direction. This one is essentially the Hangover 2 style remake, but it does what good sequels are designed to do take the familiar, make everything bigger. More action, more comedy, more bad guys, and almost certainly more cocaine. (laughs) And in my opinion, it wins in that regard. Eddie Murphy's back as Detroit police detective Axel Foley, and he reunites with those Beverly Hills detectives, Billy and John from the first one, to stop this gun-running slash robbery gang after Captain Bogomil is shot. Roger Ebert gave this one star,
0: He turns into a loudmouth, obnoxious bore in this movie, and that's not funny. Well, this movie is high tech, assembly line, movie making by the numbers. It has no creativity, it has no acting, it has no humor. If they hire him, why don't they let him? That's right. Hire him, use him. You could have plugged anybody into this movie, and it would have been just as bad. Next movie.
1: I disagree with Roger Ebert. The first Beverly Hills Cop was brilliant, and it's one of my favorite action comedies, but it was very heavy on the action and less so about the comedy, which we all know Eddie Murphy is amazing at. And here he's allowed to stretch those comedic wings. Not all the jokes land. He does, you know, his silly voices and his characters, and not all of it lands, but I think a lot of it does. Uh, It's got Tony Scott coming in to direct. So Martin Breast did the first one. Tony Scott comes in here. He's hot off Top Gun. His shots are kinetic. The action is done well. And there is a lot of action. I mean, we get explosions. We get Judge Reinhold shooting off a rocket launcher, which is worth the price of admission alone. And it has Bridget Nielsen in there as one of the bad guys. I mean, it does everything it was supposed to do. It's also a really interesting juxtaposition with how, like, glossy Top Gun was. And then a completely different style in this really dirty, really messy film beverly hills cop 2 for tony scott i just i love it i don't know if you like it or not but that's my number two
0: i i am in the i can i can honestly say i agree with both you and roger ebert because (laughs) i i think it's a great action movie and i don't think it's funny at all um so i'm in agreement with both of you actually i (laughs) i i love it as a as a tony scott uh Action movie. I mean, it has it has one of my single favorite cuts in the history of movies, which is when he at the beginning of the movie when you've got the heist sequence and then it goes into Bob Seger's "Shakedown" and Mm -hmm. the way that song like blasts on screen and he cuts to the city. I mean, that is the way you open a movie. That it is just fantastic, and the movie's filled with stuff. I mean, that is a case for Tony Scott. I mean, you know, it's like when he did "The Hunger," which is one of my all time favorite movies. Um, you know, it wasn't that successful. He didn't get work for several years. He came back with Top Gun. Top Gun was a huge hit. And then with Beverly Hills Cop 2, you feel like, okay, now he gets to play with every toy in the toy store. And boy, Mm -hmm. does he go nuts. And it's, and it's great. It's fun. It's so much fun. Um, That said, I agree with Roger Ebert. I don't think it's remotely funny. I think, I think Eddie Murphy, my, my problem with the movie when it came out, which I, again, now I just appreciate it as like a Tony Scott action movie. So, it doesn't really bother me. When it came out, my problem with it was that I felt like Eddie Murphy wasn't so much playing Axel Foley anymore as he was just playing Eddie Murphy. You know, like when when the first shot of Eddie Murphy in Beverly's Cup Two, he's wearing a suit. I thought, okay, wait a <laughs> second, this isn't Axel Foley anymore. This is this is Eddie wanting to dress in his cool threads, and you know, Axel Foley didn't wear suits. He wore the the Mumford T shirt. You know, so. Um, but it's but it's but I love it. I mean, I agree with you. It's it's a fantastic movie. And, and I'm actually even a fan of Beverly Hill's got three, which is even more maligned. Um, and it's kind of interesting how the three movies, you got Martin Brest doing the first one, you have Tony Scott doing the second one, and John Landis does the third. And I feel like they're each very, very different, because those directors are all very, very different. It's almost like a case study in the auteur theory, you know, if you wanted to show film students, what a director does, you could show them those three movies and and it kind of uh, get a sense of it, but but yeah, I uh no, I'm a huge fan of that movie as well.
1: I actually rewatched the second and third ones for this, and the third probably has one of my favorite sequences at the amusement mm-hmm. park. But it yeah. just like for me, it doesn't work as a full movie. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the the uh, song "Shakedown" by Bob Seeger, nominated for an Oscar, mm-hmm. and the rest of this soundtrack is really great too. Yeah. "I Want Your Sex" by George Michael is just really really mm-hmm. great. It's got the Pointer Sisters, Corey Hart. Yeah. Um, and I, I agree like to a, to, it, it is kind of like Eddie Murphy playing Eddie Murphy, but I still think those bits like where he, um, he brings the little paper bag and pretends that it's a explosive That's a great device. Scene. You're, right, like, you're right. You're right. You're right. Some of funny that stuff scene. really, really does work. Yeah. It's right. when he gets into his, his, uh, like Saturday night live, uh, character bits that don't work for me.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're, I had, uh, Forgotten the, the 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 thing with the bag that is really funny. All right, well my number one uh, is like the two Jakes, also from 1990, which is kind of a banner year for underrated sequels in my opinion. 1990 uh, saw the release of another 48 Hours, which I mentioned before. It saw the release of Gremlins 2. It saw the release of Godfather 3, and it was the release of, in my opinion, the greatest of all underrated sequels: Peter Bogdanovich's Texasville, the sequel to the Last Picture Show.
1: It's a whole new ballgame. Dwayne's a millionaire oil man. Carla, his beautiful wife. Ooh. And guess who just came back to town?
0: Don't I know you from somewhere?
1: Jeff Bridges. J.C. i I'm Dwayne Jackson. We went together in high school for a while. Sybil Shepard.
0: Did I have you madly in love?
1: Madly. Cloris Leachman.
0: You're scared to fall in love with her again, aren't you?
1: I don't know why we're even talking about this. Annie Potts.
0: Just because I go looking for trouble doesn't mean I want any husband but you.
1: William McNamara.
0: Who are you sleeping with that Billy Ann found out about? Well, Mrs. Nolan and Mrs. Marlowe. Oh. Timothy Bottoms. I think we're all crazy now. I don't think I'm crazy. I admit just about everybody else is.
1: And Randy Quaid. My wife's about to bear you a grandchild. I might be pregnant. Your old girlfriend's about to bear me a child. I think I'm pregnant.
0: And unless I'm very lucky, I'm headed for prison. Somebody must be making a fortune off fertility drugs in this county. Now, this is a movie that, again, I think had sort of a similar problem as Two Jakes when it came out, which is it was a sequel to a movie that was 19 years old. And in the case of The Last Picture Show, it was an even bigger problem than with The Two Jakes in Chinatown, because The Last Picture Show, there was there were music rights issues that held that up from coming out on video for years. So it had never been released on home video at the time that Texasville came out. So basically you had a whole generation of filmgoers who, if they didn't catch last picture show on cable TV, uh, they never saw it. And I think that probably has a lot to do with why Texasville just kind of died the death that it did in the, the- theaters. But, um, but it's actually kind of an interesting companion piece to the two Jakes. And it's another movie uh, about, again, about like kind of middle age and, regret and trying to figure out how you got the to this point in the life that you've gotten to and all that. And part of what gives it its power for me, you know, both Jean-Luc Godard, I think once said that every movie is a documentary of its own making. And that is very true of the last picture show in Texasville, because, you know, as people probably know uh, the last picture show, you know, the behind the scenes tumult on that movie was quite dramatic. Where you know the director Peter Bogdanovich left his wife Polly Platt, who was the production designer for Civil Shepherd, who was starring in the movie. Polly Platt stayed on and finished the movie as production designer, even while her husband was oh. having an affair <laughs> with the lead actress in the hotel room down the street. Um, Timothy Bottoms, who was an actor in the movie, was also in love with Sybil Shepherd. So him and Peter Bogdanovich were not getting along because he was, uh, you know, irritated by Bogdanovich cheating on his wife, with Civil Shepherd. All this kind of stuff was going on, and I think it all kind of, in a way, seeps into the DNA of. The Last Picture Show. And with Texasville, basically all of those people reunited 19 years later to make this sequel. And by that point, they had all this history behind them. I mean, Bogdanovich and Sybil Shepherd had lived together for something like eight or nine years. They were a couple for a very long time before they broke up. Uh, they were not together by the time of Texasville. So like they're reuniting, you know, the, the cast is coming back. Polly Platt was not credited on the movie, but there's a great documentary about the making of Texasville called Picture This, where she's always kind of lurking around the periphery. So she was there for whatever reason. And the whole movie is kind of about it's it's an interesting movie because it's a comedy about sort of very unhappy, miserable people. I mean, basically everyone in Texasville is you know unsatisfied in some way, except for the William McNamara character, Jeff Bridges' son, who's this kind of Lothario, betting all the women in town, and he seems kind of just clueless and and joyful. Um, but everyone else is in this state of middle aged malaise, and yet it's a very very funny movie, and it kind of it kind of speaks to Bogdanovich what I think are Bogdanovich's greatest strengths as a director, which is he's really one of the all time greats when it comes to juxtaposing really wildly varying tones in one movie, you know he can go from poignancy to kind of slapstick comedy to uh to tragedy to you know just just very very quickly and very deftly and 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 Texasville I think has some really devastating you know emotional revelations, but then it's also got this almost kind of like just goof really goofy sense of humor to it, and um I think it's kind of. Like, it's just, it's like the best kind of sequel, because it, it's a sequel that is, in a way, more of the same. I mean, it's sort of just a continuation of the story of all of these characters from The Last Picture Show. Um, But in each case, it deepens them, it gives some of the minor characters uh, more of a role in the story than they had in the first movie. It just kind of expands the whole universe of these characters. And uh I just think it's a really beautiful, elegant little movie.
1: I have also never seen Texasville, so this is another one that I got to put on my list here. As your number one, I think uh, I owe it to you to watch this one.
0: It's a great movie. It's also, unfortunately, it's the hardest one to find on my list. It's out of print on DVD and and all that. And I went to look to see if it was streaming anywhere so I could revisit it uh, before I did this. And I went on justwatch.com and they didn't even have an entry for it. So, uh, so it is kind of, I I, I really hope it gets resurrected at some point because there's a, there's an extended director's cut of it on Laserdisc. That's fantastic. Um, But it's the only format it ever came out on was Laserdisc. And I keep hoping Shout Factory or Criterion or somebody like that will get their hands on it and uh, reissue it because I don't know if you can find like a bad copy on YouTube or anything like that. But it is, uh, it's a really, really beautiful, uh, magnificent movie.
1: Uh, When you said 1990, I was like, oh, is he going to talk about my number one? And this is kind of another one of those, I guess it's kind of like a cheat in the same way that Magic Mike XXL was, where it kind of, critics didn't hate it, but I Mm -hmm. think that it is maligned when it comes to the series Mm -hmm. in total, and of course, this is Die Hard 2 from 1990.
0: Your wife's playing? They're going to run out of fuel in 90 minutes. LA cop John McLean is back. What are you going to do? Whatever I can. Because old habits die hard.
1: We are just up to our neck in terrorists again, John. On July 4th, Die Harder. Bruce Willis, Die Hard 2, rated R. How do you follow up one of the best action films of all time? I. I don't envy the position that Jeb Stewart and Steven D'Souza were in when they had to write a sequel to Die Hard. Now, the first film in this series literally changed the action film landscape and how we viewed action stars, because up to that point it was your Arnold Schwarzeneggers, your unhittable heroes that look like Hercules. And then we go to a barefoot, vulnerable John McClane. And although I think that everybody agrees that this is not the best of the Die Hard franchise. I do think that it's unfairly maligned when you look at all five, or all four, because I really don't count the last one because it was just the wor- one of the worst movies I've ever seen. But if you look online and you look at lists, Die Hard 2 is often put behind three and four in the list of Die Hard movies, and I think that's unfair. Obviously, I get that making a Die Hard sequel presents a very similar problem to the Home Alone films, Because we buy that in one film, like, John McClane was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the villains never expected the hero to be there. But how do you replicate that logically in a sequel? Of course, in Home Alone, you put Kevin in a similar situation and get him uh, on the wrong flight. And accept that he has terrible parents that should probably be prosecuted. (laughs) But in Die Hard 2, John McClane finds himself fighting terrorists again on Christmas Eve. Uh, This time he's stuck in an airport, Dulles Airport. Something that he, in the script, acknowledges himself with the line, how can the same shit happen to the same guy twice? But I I still think it works. Ebert actually liked this one more than he disliked it. He said it was terrific entertainment. I totally agree. I do like that John McClane jumps into the danger with both feet here. In the first one, he's very reluctant to get into the action, which made sense. I mean, he wasn't there on duty. He's there for a Christmas party and things pop off. Here... He sees something suspicious and follows the terrorists into the baggage area because he's following a hunch. Now, obviously, the villains aren't as much fun as in the first, but how are you going to top Alan Rickman? He was he's untoppable. He's amazing. But these villains here in Die Hard 2 are way more evil. Hans Gruber wanted a big payday. And like at the end of the day, he was a bank robber disguised as an international terrorist. But here we get actual international terrorists who goes so far as to crash a passenger plane filled with people in a just a daring display in an action film of evil from these from these villains. It has one of the best diehard kills, in my opinion, as McLean snaps off an icicle and stabs a guy in the eye with it. It's one of my favorites as as a genre fan. And there's a lot of fun action set pieces. You get the annex Skywalk ambush, the the plane being fired upon outside with an insane escape by McLean. You get an amazing payoff in the snow with the the fire leading up to the plane. I honestly think that if this was not written as a Die Hard movie, people would have gone bananas over this film. And I think that the only reason that it's so low on the list is because it's kind of a retread of the first one. But I fucking love this movie. Plus, you get naked Bill Sadler doing like kung fu moves in a hotel room, which is just amazing. So Die Hard 2 from 1990, that's my grand finale.
0: Well, I have to ask Jason what kind of circles you're hanging around in where Die Hard 2 is an un- <laughs> is an unliked movie because this is this is completely mystifying to me. I I love Die Hard 2 um and it would never occur to me to to put it on an underrated list maybe because you know I was living in Chicago at the time that it came out and all of the Chicago critics, Gene Siskel, Roger Ebert, Dave Kerr, they all loved this movie. I mean um, you know I mean Ebert didn't just like it more than he disliked it. he gave it three and a half stars I mean he liked it way more than the first one I think um, I think he only gave the first one three stars he gave Die Hard two three and a half Siskel gave it four stars and said it was the best movie this summer and at the end of the year it was on his top ten list above like Dances with Wolves and Reversal of Fortune. Um, So, oh, maybe um, I'm
1: way off base in how I remember this was received. So
0: it was. I remember it being very critically well received and being very well received by the public. I mean, I went and saw it a few times opening weeks, and it was jammed every time. Um, So I think you were hanging around with the wrong people if you have to. (laughs) If you have to defend your love of this movie, I mean, I think it's sort of. I I, again, maybe this is just, uh, you know, uh, maybe this is like my reacting to your very Brady Bunch sequel thing where I I, I'm my own love for it is so makes me blind to other people's uh, dislike of it but I actually was um yeah I think it's a it's a great movie I mean I don't think there's any question it's it's you know Rennie Harlan at the top of his his game a beautifully engineered action movie very very funny very in a way um more morally consequential than the other die hard movies in the sense that like you actually get a sense of like like when he wipes out the the plane full of people i mean they actually kind of like it's 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 a genuinely like tragic weighty moment i mean i feel like i feel like they don't just throw it away and they don't um but like and like john amos is great yeah no it's i I think it's a fantastic movie and i actually um yeah i just had a different i have a different impression but again maybe maybe it was just received that way in chicago maybe in the rest of the world people are disappointed by it but uh Why the hell did they make three more movies if people didn't
1: like it? As I look at Rotten Tomatoes, just, again, not the best system for seeing how people liked it, but the first one is up there with 94%. This one is still fresh, but it's still 30%, 25% lower with 69%. I think it's definitely better than that.
0: Well, I think, you know, I, I also wonder, too, with Rotten Tomatoes, how much revisionist history goes on. I wonder, you know, because some of those reviews are from people... Reevaluating these movies later. Because and and I can tell you, maybe, maybe Die Hard 2's reputation has gone down and Die Hard's reputation has gone up. Because I can tell you when Die Hard came out, it wasn't spectacularly well reviewed. Like it was it was a hit, but it was I mean, again, like Sisko gave it thumbs down when they reviewed it on Cisco and Eber. I mean, it was not it was not like everybody thought that was so great when it came out. Um and so maybe there's be again. Maybe there's a little bit of revisionist history where now that one has risen in people's minds and the second one has gone down. I think they're both fantastic movies. Um, I'm definitely, you know, uh, I've I'm not a a huge fan of anything that follows, but those first two are great.
1: <laughs> well, if I had to if I had to knock it off the list, then uh, I guess we can get to my honorable mentions. the The first one that would be there to take its place would be Death Wish three. Mm with uh, Bronson mm-hmm. but I wanted to just go with sequels on these. Uh I also had a couple of other honorable mentions Rush Hour 2 which I left off the list because it's basically the same formula as Beverly Hills Cop 2. Mm-hmm. Uh Rambo the 4th Rambo movie I think yeah. is just like bananas. Fantastic. Penitentiary 2 the uh-huh. Great movie. exploitation film, yep. Yeah. And then finally one
0: that I'm surprised didn't come up on your list, Any Which Way You Can. Uh, you know, the only reason that didn't, I'll tell you, there's a couple you just mentioned that I thought about. I I thought about Death Wish 3, I thought about Any Which Way You Can, I thought about Penitentiary 2. Um, the reason Any Which Way You Can isn't on, it didn't come up on there, is because I feel like it's the same reason Gremlins 2 isn't on my list, which is I think those both have sort of in recent years acquired enough of a cult around them that they're no longer really entirely underappreciated. Um, Like I think, I think in any which way you can, in fact, I discovered when I was talking about it on the pure cinema podcast and I was kind of researching it I discovered that actually a lot of critics thought it was better than the first one. Like every which way, but loose was horribly reviewed when it came out. It was a big hit, but critics thought it was completely moronic and they're not entirely wrong. Um, <laughs> but any which way you can, like if you look it up in like the Leonard Maltin guide, he says it's better than the first one. Um, a number of other critics, maybe Ebert. I'm not sure if I'm getting that right, but I know some other critics actually did think any which way you can was spirit of the original. So that's, that's the only reason I did think about it. Um, Cause it's, I love any which way you can, Uh, And I love Death Wish 3. I actually, if you could see me right now, I'm sitting in front of an enormous French poster for Death Wish 3. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, And the only reason I didn't include it is because also I kind of feel like Death Wish 3 and 4 have also kind of, uh, they've built like a big enough cult around them the last few years. I don't know if they're really... um, Underappreciated, but if I was doing it, if I was doing a podcast on underrated sequels that were underrated in their moment, I think my number one would have been Gremlins Two: The New Batch, also from sure. nineteen ninety. Because I think when that came out, I felt very, very lonely, uh loving that movie. <laughs> um, but it's another one I think, like Magic Mike XXL, where it's just Dante just feeling liberated by the fact that he could kind of do whatever the hell he wanted, and it's just like him going completely insane, and uh, so. You know, yeah, but uh but yeah, I like all those those honorable mentions you have. I mean I I, I didn't really do an honorable mention list, although uh I would like to say I I will put out a shout out for my all-time favorite guilty pleasure sequel, which is Showgirls 2 Pennies from Heaven, P E N N Y (laughs) apostrophe S. Uh, which if people are not familiar with this, this is the unsanctioned Showgirls sequel that Rena Riffle who played Penny, one of the strippers in the original Showgirls. Uh she wrote, directed and stars in this spin-off movie that it focuses on Penny and has a number of the peripheral actors from Showgirls like Glenn Plummer's in it and some other people. It's like well over 2 hours and what? it is and it is essentially um it's almost like a cross it's almost more Mulholland Drive than Showgirls. It's kind of Rena Riffle's meditation on being a woman in Hollywood and it's very very strange and very surreal. And I wouldn't necessarily call it good, but it is fascinating. And so if you can find Showgirls 2 Pennies from Heaven, that is uh highly recommended.
1: That is a film that I never knew existed and kind <laughs> of feel like I need to seek out. I don't know if ridiculous. it's still I
0: don't know if it's still there, but I got I bought the DVD on Amazon several years ago. It played here in LA at CineFamily. Uh, rena riffle came and showed it was like a midnight screening and it didn't get out until like 3 30 in the morning because between the movie being so long and rena riffle doing A, Q&A, it was like very which was the perfect way to watch that movie it's kind of best watched in like a half stupor
1: wow all right jim Hempill, amazing show amazing list what else should people check out of yours obviously uh, everything that everything of yours that people want to see they can see at jim
0: Yeah, that's probably the, I mean, you kind of, you actually in your intro did a great job of plugging everything for me. I feel like, I mean, yeah, they can, (laughs) if they go to, if they go to my website, they'll, you know, can find my articles. I've got, I post when I've got new commentaries. Uh, I I just did a new commentary for the British Film Institute Blu-ray of Don Siegel's invasion of the Body Snatchers. So uh, that I'm I'm pretty happy with. So people can look for that. Um, And yeah, they can watch uh, Trouble with the Truth is streaming on Amazon and Tubi and number of other random places, passion flicks, so you can, you know, so uh check that out and uh yeah that's about it.
1: So, is Die Hard 2 underrated or am I just a moron? Let me know on social media at Force5Pod on Twitter and Force5 Podcast on Instagram and your comment might just make it to the show. I'm also keeping up on Letterboxd, Letterboxd letterboxd.com backslash force5 if you want to sneak peek at what I've been watching and what I might be reviewing on next week's show. Of course, if you liked what you heard, please review the show wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends to listen as well. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch The Trouble with the Truth. And then go watch some underrated sequels. Force Bob.